It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Aha, ha, ha, ha. Yeah! What it do, baby? Hey, what's going on? Welcome to episode number 776 of Locked On Raptors for Wednesday, September the 2nd. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of RaptorsHQ.com. You can find me on Twitter as always at WoodleySean, and you can find the show at Locked On Raptors, where you can find links to every single episode of the podcast. Also, please make sure you're checking out the entirety of the Locked On Podcast Network from baseball, basketball, hockey, football, all of the sports they talk about in the Lonely Island song. They are covered with daily shows covering all of your favorite teams, so please make sure you're checking those out. It is much appreciated when you take the time. If you're a football fan, the season is apparently a week away all of a sudden, and they're just trudging on like there's no virus at all. And so uh, make sure you're checking out your favorite NFL team's Locked On show, as all the hosts over there do wonderful, wonderful work. All right, on today's show, speaking of other Locked On hosts, I am joined for a crossover episode with uh, by John Corrales of Locked On Celtics. We uh, have a long chat about just sort of our impressions on the series, Marcus Smart going off in the fourth quarter of Game 2, things the Raptors can do to maybe turn the tide a little bit, things that John is maybe frightened of the Raptors doing and adjusting with and all that stuff. So really good chat with John. Really appreciate him always taking the time. Our crossovers are always quite fun. As I always say, we're down with the Celtics in pretty much every facet on this year podcast. But John Corrales is one of the good ones, and we enjoy talking to him, and we had a good time. Although, uh, you know, I don't know if talking to John made me feel much better about the series itself. I still think this has a potential to go long, but John makes some compelling points as to uh, reasons potentially why it might not go long. Either way, hope you really enjoy it. We'll be back again uh, to break down Game 3 on Thursday night as well, which I'm sure will be... Just tons of fun. Just a blast, I'm guessing. Uh, here's hoping they win, man. God, I, I just, I, I, I'm too accustomed to successful basketball. As much as uh, I, you know, am very okay with whatever the outcome is, considering the entire season up to this point has been truly wonderful and one of a kind and unique and glorious and inspiring in a lot of ways. I, uh, you know, you don't want to see them lose, <laughs> especially to the freaking Celtics, man. Nobody wants the Celtics to win or have success. No one wants Bill Simmons to be happy. But uh, alas, we are on the brink of that actually happening. So we talk about game three with John Corrales and get you ready for it. And it's a rocking good time. As always, before we get to that chat, I want to tell everybody about Built Bar, which is the best tasting protein bar ever, and they've got new and improved flavors as well to add to their excellent complement of 12 original flavors. They include caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, that's a pun, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, and apple almond crisp. They've also got those original flavors, which include some of my favorites like mint brownie, uh, peanut butter, toffee almond is amazing, peanut butter brownie is very good too. No shortage of excellent flavors when it comes to 
Built Bars, and they're also pretty healthy for you, too. They're great for the health-conscious person. You can lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. Bars are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, and they're great for keto diets as well. With a peanut butter flavor, for example, you've got 19 grams of protein, 180 calories, 5 grams of sugar, 5 grams of net carbs. With the coconut almond, you've got 18 grams of protein, 180 calories, 5 grams of sugar, 5 grams of net carbs. And the cookies and cream has just 130 calories, 17 grams of protein, 4 grams of sugar, 4 grams of net carbs. On the whole, Built Bars have seven times less sugar than Cliff Bars. That is bonkers. Also, when you order now with our special promo code LOCKDOWN, you're going to get a free cooler with your purchase while supplies last. This is not going to last a very long time, so make sure you're getting in there and buying your Built Bars now so you get a free cooler with your purchase. Go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKDOWN. You're going to get $10 off of your next order. Use promo code LOCKDOWN for 10 bucks off at BuiltBar.com. This is Jake from Locked On. Locked On has teamed up with State Farm to spotlight some of the greatest supporting players in NBA history. After beating the Heat led by LeBron James and Dwayne Wade in 2011, Dirk Nowitzki won an NBA title and proved himself to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But there was one player in the starting lineup for the last three games of the finals that helped support Dirk all the way to a championship, J.J. Barea. Led by J.J. and Jason Terry, the Mavs' second unit proved to be the strength throughout the playoffs, where they led the NBA in bench scoring. But for games 4, 5, and 6 in the NBA Finals, Mavs coach Rick Carlisle inserted Berea into the starting five to help the Mavs space the floor and put more playmaking around Dirk. J.J. Berea had a knack for running the pick-and-roll with Dirk that helped the Mavs score more efficiently on their run to a title. Dirk Nowitzki couldn't score the way he did if he didn't have much-needed support from someone like J.J. Berea. Sometimes, you and I need that kind of support, too. Think of State Farm like a pivotal team player. When you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember the jingle and just say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, let's get to it. The chat with myself and John Corrales of Locked On Celtics teeing up Game 3, looking back at Games 1 and 2, a bit of a Games 1 and 2 in review, if you will, ahead of Game 3 on Thursday. Enjoy! Hey, what's up? It's Sean Woodley from Locked On Raptors, joined by John Corrales of Locked On Celtics, who is probably a much happier man than I am today. John, what's going on, man? <laughs> I'm I'm never happy. <laughs> Just a constant grump. Uh, that Just is John Corrales. Always yeah. angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm joining you in that now as the Toronto Raptors trail 0-2 to the Boston Celtics. You should be much happier considering what the Celtics have done to the Raptors no, through two games. Uh, I'm surprised Marcus Smart's out-of-body experience doesn't have you in a better mood today. No, uh, I'm actually very happy. I'm yeah. actually very happy. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I'm rotten. I'm feeling rotten after that Marcus Smart BS in, uh, I imagine, in the fourth quarter. Have you seen uh, Princess Bride? Uh, where I've seen like bits and pieces, not the whole thing. The, the scene in Princess Bride where they go to Miracle Max and... He makes up excuses to not do the miracle and his wife comes out and she starts saying liar. And then she starts saying the name Humperdink over and over again. Cause she knows he hates that name. I assume that that's how Raptors fans feel like when they hear Marcus smart, yeah, Marcus smart, ah, Marcus smart. Ah, mm-hmm. I'm not listening. <laughs> it's just a big angry, like you don't want to hear it. Uh, the mere mention of his name just draws your ire. Yeah, that uh, that checks out. I I haven't really even brought myself to go and watch the ninety seconds within which he sunk the Raptors in Game Two with those uh, three. So let me just ask you before we get into any like nitty gritty stuff, like what the hell was that? And have you ever seen Marcus Smart do 
literally anything close to resembling that. I know Marcus Smart makes winning plays. Ha ha ha. I'm Michael Pina. I named my podcast after things I say about Marcus Smart. Um, and I know he, you know, as a Kyle Lowry appreciator, I can kind of understand the Marcus Smart thing as well because he's clearly a very smart basketball player. He clearly does the little things that annoy other people. He's on the refs. He flops. Uh, I, I would argue he flops more than literally any person I've ever seen in the history of the NBA. And were he on my team, I would certainly say, hell yeah, Marcus Smart, that's my dude. Of course, he is on the team that is sinking the team that I like and cover and support. And uh, that is not good. And that does not make me feel warm and nice inside. But yeah, wh- what was that for Marcus Smart? Has anything like that ever happened before? And what's oh, yeah. going on in sort of a more sort of series level with his three-point shooting so far in the series? I know he was like league average this season, but he's been ridiculous so far through two games. Yeah, I mean he has he has this ability, um, and even even before like the last two seasons, he's been right around league average. Last year was a little bit better, uh, but he he has these stretches and has had stretches where once he gets hot, he can really get hot. I was in the building where when he hit eleven three pointers and set a Boston Celtics record. He shot 11 for 22 in January against Phoenix. So uh, he's, he's done that before, and him hitting five three-pointers in a game is or six three-pointers in a game, not unusual. I mean, he's done that uh, probably like a, a dozen times this year. He, he can, when he gets that confidence going, when he gets hot, it's just one of those things where you just got to ride it out and hope that once he misses, he he – kind of forgets that he the heater's over and he jacks up like two or three bad ones mm-hmm. um but like that's that's just something that as a Celtics guy I can't I can't count on that like I don't come into any games where I think well Marcus Smart shooting is going to bail the Celtics out but I also know that once he hits a couple it's like uh-oh uh oh, is this is this one of those nights? <laughs> and the past two, which just happened to be two in a row, that it it was. Yeah, I I mean, I, I, it's just so frustrating to talk about game two as well. And I had a hard time, and I've had a hard time sort of reconciling it all because I think on balance the Raptors should have won that game. They played better. They were kind of in control going into the fourth quarter. And as we often see in playoff series, just like random weird occurrences can kind of swing it and you don't have 82 games of normalization to count on to sort of make things snap back to normal. And you're, you're kind of stuck sitting there after that outburst at the start of the fourth. And look, it's not like the Raptors did themselves any favors after Marcus Smart finished hitting all those threes and they had to close out the game pretty much from even and they did not do so well in that. And the late game execution was bad, as we talked about on yesterday's Locked On Raptors and all of that. But it just, you know, it feels like everything went pretty reasonably well for the Raptors. And it feels like they probably should have, like, won that game based on the process of everything, based on, you know, the open looks they got. I mean, they go 11-40 of from three after going 10-40 of in game one. 
And I think, by and large, the looks have been there. I'm not sure of the exact numbers in Game 2, but I know the expected field goal percentage from the Raptors in Game 1 was better than Boston's, even though they lost by 18. And it's just, you kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, like, what the hell when something like that from Marcus Smart happens? Because I think it was Kevin Pelton who tweeted this. Like, we, we spend all this time analyzing and breaking down matchups and rotations and all this stuff, but sometimes it's just Marcus Smart hit five threes in 90 seconds, and that right. is the game. And it's just it's a it's a frustrating one to try to break down and understand because it doesn't really make any sense no it doesn't really make sense um the 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 Kemba Walker 11 points in the final seven minutes make more sense uh, but it, it it really Sean it comes down to execution right like mm-hmm. we talk about how many times you sit there and say who's the best player in the series who's going to step up and make a play and at the end of this game, it was it was basically it was just Boston stepping up and making plays, and Kemba Walker stepping up and making plays, and Jason Tatum, be, like beyond the the Marcus Smart stuff, like Marcus Marcus Smart's shots. Let's be real, only gave Boston a one point lead. Mm-hmm. Basically, he leveled the game. So whatever was happening earlier, he just erased Boston's slow start earlier or Toronto's hot start, however you want to, whatever perspective you want to take. But after Marcus Smart hit his free throw, his last three-pointer where he got fouled made it 85-85. Mm-hmm. And then he hit the free throw, then Lowry hit a layup, and, and Toronto has a lead with seven and a half minutes to go. And then what happens? Kemba Walker starts making shots, and, and the, the Raptors don't. Lowry misses, Van Vliet misses, uh, Ananobi misses. Just going down, just like going down the play by play. Van Vliet had a wide open three pointer in the corner with the Raptors down six that could have cut the lead down to three. And instead, Kemba Walker comes and makes a layup. And next thing you know, it's an eight point lead with four minutes to go and and things starting to like slip away. The, The Celtics had their guys making plays. And maybe the biggest question here. For, for me, from the outside, looking at this Raptors team. They're awesome in transition. They're not great in the half court. And why weren't they great in the half court? Because as much as we like to pump up Pascal Siakam, and he's an all-star and he's a great player. I mean, I love watching Pascal Siakam. But he's not, I don't think, at that next level yet. Mm-hmm. And if Kyle Lowry is not getting out in transition, or, or who's the guy that's going to be hitting all of these these shots in the half court. Who's the creator in the half court that's going to go out there and get you that bucket? That I think, from a Toronto perspective, for me, that that was that was going to be one of the biggest differences in the series. Yeah, I mean that that's of course going to be Young Prince OG Ananobi. Uh, <laughs> maybe I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're totally right, man. It's this has been the question for, for the Raptors that we were talking about quite literally every single day on Locked On Raptors going into the playoffs and thinking about matchups against Boston and Milwaukee. And I think Milwaukee was sort of the team most people had on their minds as, you know, this like transcendent defensive team that are they going to be able to score enough in the half court on them? But guess what? Boston's incredible in the half court too. And they just so happen to be monstrous defending in transition as well. And, you know, I know the Raptors got out on the run a little bit more last night and they had some success, especially early on. But, you know, Boston wasn't going to let that continue. And, you know, it, it kind of is a bit of a spiral effect as well because, 
you know, when things don't work in transition and then you can't get your offense flowing, then you're not able to defend the best way you want to at the other end. It's all very simple, rudimentary basketball theory stuff. But, you know, if you're not getting the stops that you need and forcing the turnovers that you need, because in part you're not, you know, putting the defense, you're not getting back in a set defense because you're not scoring at the other end. It just kind of is a self fulfilling thing where, you know, you can't do the thing you do best and that bleeds into every other part of your game. That said, I think the Raptors played a pretty good game and I think their defense has been quite good so far through two games. I don't think Boston's getting much easy necessarily. I think Tatum, you know, is going to get his because he's a monster and the Raptors have not quite done the thing where I'm expecting them to at some point where they just throw OG on Tatum and, you know, kind of say, all right, we're not switching anymore. We're not going to, you know, throw Lowry on him and get cute and have OG and Pascal work as off ball guys. We're just going to have OG and potentially Pascal as well, who got a couple steals off of Tatum last night. We're just going to throw them on Tatum and hope it works and everything else can kind of fall into place. Um, and that kind of leads me to a question for you, John, sort of looking into game three, um, you know, after what you saw in game two, where there were some adjustments, I just think it was more just the Raptors played a little bit better, really, as like rudimentary and simplistic as that sounds. I don't think they made any sort of grand sweeping alterations to the way they play. I alluded to a few on on the Tuesday postgame podcast, sort of things that I think the Raptors can do to really sort of try to put the Celtics on their heels going into Game 3. But from your perspective as someone who is on the Celtics side of all this... Is there something that you're looking at from the Raptors and saying, ooh, I hope they don't do that because that could cause some problems for Boston? Um, I don't know if there's any one particular thing that's going get, to get that kind of reaction because I think Boston can adjust. I think the first thing you got to do is get Marcus Gasol out of the starting lineup. Mm. Um, I, think, I think Ibaka has killed the Celtics enough where, I mean, maybe, maybe it's because he's coming off the bench that he's hitting these shots, but I don't think so. I think he's just hitting those shots and and Gasol, aside from, by the way, the most hilarious, slow motion, slowest backdoor cut I've ever seen in my life, enough <laughs> on the first bucket of the game, where he basically slowly tiptoed behind Daniel Tice. Uh, I think that when when Gasol fouled out at late in game two, I thought, oh my God, that's actually bad for the Celtics because uh, he was being attacked over and over and over again. He just doesn't have that foot speed to to keep up with what the Celtics can throw at him. At least Ibaka can can kind of keep up and, and protect the rim a little bit more. So that'd be the first thing that I would do. Mm-hmm. But I think I think the Celtics can. I mean, I don't think they have a problem throwing Robert Williams in there a little bit earlier and and trying to counter with that. And he's been really good in the series. And if if you do decide to go with Ananobi on Jason Tatum, then I'm looking for Tatum, who had th- six assists in this game to maybe have more than that and get and Jalen Brown to start going because Jalen Brown hasn't had a couple of, has had a couple of like poor shooting games. Mm-hmm. I thought generally he was defensively pretty good, but if, if Toronto does what you're saying, then I expect Tatum to become a facilitator and, and really try to, to move the ball and, and maybe Jalen Brown can start uh, picking up some easier baskets. Cause I think Jalen Brown's trying to create a little bit, uh, for himself, and that's not going very well. Jalen Brown needs to like catch the ball, you know, drive in kicks and and hit some corner threes. So, um, frankly, uh, I think the Celtics have Toronto's number, mm-hmm. and the matchup is just a bad one for Toronto because the Celtics even they haven't been getting back in transition 
extraordinarily well, but they've been doing well enough where they're, they're really cutting off the, the biggest strength that the Raptors have. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. Totally. And look, I think Norman Powell playing uh, a very minimal role so far in this series is kind of a big part of that, too, because he is a demon in transition. He's so good when he gets on the run, whether it's, you know, hitting threes on the trail, whether it's just kind of, you know, driving himself and, and finishing. And when you don't have that element because he's not really feeling himself... You know, things just get a little bit tricky, and you don't really trust Terrence Davis. And Chris Boucher had moments of nice energy, but you're not really thrilled about the idea of Chris Boucher playing a ton of minutes either. And so, like, one of the adjustments, it's not even an adjustment, it's just have Norm Powell play better, because he opens up a few things, you know, <laughs> not just in transition, but also in the half court as a guy who can drive and, you know, cause some havoc, who's become a better finisher around the rim, who's become a better driving kick guy. If you have that operating, you don't have to rely so much on Fred Van Vliet over dribbling at six feet tall with big dudes in his face. You don't have to worry about Pascal Siakam posting up a dozen times and trying to get stuff out of that. Although I thought they did a better job in game two of having Pascal post up and Siakam, to his credit, was much better at diagnosing when the double was coming, diagnosing when they weren't sending a double and just sort of taking it to the basket. Um, you know, he obviously didn't shoot terribly well, but he had six assists and I thought his decisiveness early on was much better. And that, you know, you mentioned the Yabaka thing and the Gasol thing, and that is, you know, I, I disagree. I think there is something the Raptors can do to throw at the Celtics and kind of make them think a little bit, but it is kind of predicated on Powell figuring himself out because I am honestly almost ready to not see a whole lot of Ibaka or Gasol late in these games. You know, Ibaka, look, I love Serge Ibaka with all of my heart on and off the court. He's just like a wonderful, wonderful person. I would happily give him an extension just to keep him around just as a dude to be on the Raptors because, uh, I, you know, Raptors fans have their title. They can enjoy a fun team for a couple years is kind of my whole ethos about it all. But um, when it comes to Ibaka, like he kind of... It's weird because he, he is this security blanket on offense who will happily take those above, above, the, above, ah, above the break threes that Marcus Gasol <laughs> is afraid to take. And, you know, it's a valuable piece of the offense. But I kind of feel like sometimes when Ibaka gets going, you can kind of just be like, take him out now, please, because they're going to sort of funnel things to him too much. And then things will taper off. And then you kind of see what you saw at the end of the third and start of the fourth in the game on, on Tuesday, where it just, you know, running the offense through Serge Ibaka as your number one option is not going to work for you for longer than a couple of minutes here and there against second units. And so with that, I kind of like the idea of them just going small and playing Siakam at center. And I talked about this on Tuesday's podcast, and sorry for rehashing this for Raptors fans, but I think this is the last big card the Raptors have to play. And if you play Pascal at the four, you throw in an OG at the four, at the four. Sorry, Pascal at the five, OG at the four, and then Norm Van Vliet and Lowry. You know, maybe that's a little bit small, one, two, three, but that's a lot of ball handling. Lowry and Fred can both guard up in size a little bit. You're not too worried, I think, about Lowry guarding. I mean, they've had him on Tatum for most of the series. They don't think they're worried about him guarding bigger guys. He can do it, and so maybe you can get away with it a little bit to skew smaller. 
And then I, I feel like that just kind of sets things up where, A, you're not really relying so much on, you know, Abaka and Gasol in pick and roll coverage on defense, which they have not been good in because Kemba Walker, you know, while he was one of eight from three yesterday, very easily could have bombed five threes in it on the Raptors' heads very easily because there was very no, nobody in his, in, in his way. It was sort of a half-assed drop coverage that wasn't really working. They weren't getting up high enough. They weren't dropping back far enough. It was just no man's land. And I kind of think that's exposed Gasol and Abaka a little bit so far with all the pull-up shooting that the Celtics have. And so if you have seen Siakam at center and he can be involved in those screen actions he's so long he's so quick he rotates so well I kind of think you mitigate those issues a little bit and make it a little bit more difficult for a Kemba or a Tatum to pull up you know kind of unencumbered and you also on offense kind of invite Siakam to be more of a screener which I think they have not done enough of and when they have done it it's been to sort of get these silly switches onto Marcus Smart which stop doing that please it's bad (laughs) it's not good don't do it anymore um and you know I think like just having him work pick and roll as like a roll man or as a pick and pop guy is just a a better way to get Siakam into positions where he can be successful as well so uh, I don't know what do you think John to about the idea of going small for the Raptors if they were to sort of skew small and play Pascal to five does that give you a little bit of nervousness if you're Boston um you know it'd be interesting to see how that went because I still think the Celtics could could play Robert Williams and I think he could like I'd like to see how that worked. This is where not having Gordon Hayward really hurts hmm. because if you threw Siakam at the five and the Celtics had to run with Hayward in there with Tatum, Brown, Kemba, and Smart, I'd be like, yes, finally, this is a team that that is playing into the Celtics' best five, quote unquote, best five lineup. Mm-hmm. It's their best five players that they've tried to use a few times, and and it's worked. In, in small doses, but like it wouldn't work against Miami because Bam Adebayo is too big, too strong. But against Toronto, I'm like, oh, man. I mean, Gordon can guard Pascal Siakam. I mean, he's, he's definitely. Uh, so I don't know how the Celtics, you, you, could throw, you could throw any number of different looks in there. Uh, you can try Robert Williams and say, hey, you're too small. Try guarding these lobs. And just run a bunch of picks and like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. That may fix a scoring issue that the Raptors have, but does it create a defensive issue that the Celtics can exploit? Um, and then if the Celtics happen to be up and we're just trading baskets, then I think the Celtics are good with that. Uh, but if, if, if the, if Robert Williams doesn't show that he can guard Siakam on the perimeter, if he gets too lost, then it's too much to ask. Then they can try Grant Williams, who I know is a rookie, but did hold his own in game two and can at least slide his feet and be quick enough and strong enough where if Siakam bowls into him, Grant Williams is not going anywhere. And you could try the same with Shemi Ojale, who is kind of hit or miss. And in game one, he was good because I think he could handle the Siakam post-ups. Game two, he wasn't because he wasn't sliding his feet and he wasn't staying in front of Siakam. So kind of depending on how the game flow, one of those two guys can kind of step in. I feel like the counter, that counter allows too much, from a Toronto perspective, too much Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown being able to shoot over the top. Mm. Uh, But arguing with myself in the moment, they say, well, maybe that could bait those two guys into going into ISO 
And if, if the Celtics go ISO, then that could be what, what wins the game for Toronto. But if the Celtics move the ball and get themselves good looks with ball movement, then they can shoot over the top of that defensive lineup on the perimeter. And I, I think you run the risk of a, a Jalen Brown getting hot from three, Jason Tatum getting hot from three, and, and having this game get away from you again. Yeah, totally. And, you know, again, for the Raptors, it's a trade-off of, you know, you take out Gasol and Ibaka. Ibaka, I think, has objectively been, at worst, like the third best Raptor so far in this series. You could argue maybe second. And Gasol, who hasn't looked great, but, you know, does offer very good rim protection and, in theory, offers three-point shooting and playmaking. Can you justify taking those two out and putting in Norm Powell, who has not been good so far and has not really made his impact felt on the series whatsoever. And, you know, again, a lot of it is very reductive sounding when you talk about what the Raptors have done so far, but like Norm Powell has to play better. Pascal Siakam has to play better. And yes, the Celtics are doing things to make things difficult on them. But I also think there's certainly some agency that they have to just play less badly than they have so far. You come here for the good analysis is, uh, (laughs) is what you do. I mean, you're not. You're um, just yeah. not going to win with Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry combining to go three from 19 from three. You're just not going to win those games. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the bottom line. And even though it was close, that was that that think that's your biggest problem. That Fred Van Vliet and Marcus Smart have basically switched bodies, and that you know, hey, it's a Disney thing, right? Like they're <laughs> you know, maybe maybe they were peeing in the same fountain and lightning struck, and they switched shooting ability. You know, you never know what happens in Magic Kingdom, but that's if if Van Vliet hits just one more three and Cal Lowry hits two or three like he's expected, then the tenor of this game changes depending on when they actually hit those shots. But you know, the butterfly effect of it all is with the, when they're hitting shots, then the the momentum changes, and you know, you're playing with a lead versus from playing playing from behind, and the pressure of who takes which shot when, and maybe Siakam doesn't force certain shots when you are up five versus being down five. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the the entire flow of the game changes. So as much as we're talking about these big adjustments, I I wonder from my perspective, like asking you the question, is there a fear? Like would Nick nurse just be sitting there saying like, okay, yes, we can tinker, but do we have to go too crazy changing what we're good at if Fred and Kyle just hit a few more shots that changes things so dramatically mm-hmm. that that could just be the only thing we need. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of what happened in the Bucks series last year in games one and two where they go down 0-2. Yes, they weren't very good in game two, but they were excellent in game one and almost pulled it out. And then going into game three, the conversation was, oh, does Marcus Saul lose his starting job? And how do they change things up here? And obviously that's the game where they, you know, make the decision to put Kawhi on Giannis. And again, large elephant in the room for all of this is the Raptors don't have Kawhi Leonard anymore. So making these adjustments <laughs> is a little more difficult. Uh, that should be an shocker. adjustment that Nick Nurse should make. Yeah, should go, go get, get Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard. Leonard. Yeah, go just like borrow him from the Clippers. He's in the bubble. You can just go like there. to him and say, hey, dude, want to come over for a game? Uh, you know, European soccer style just on loan but um yeah you know it's just it's it's 
I don't know <laughs> is the thing it is <laughs> and I don't like Nick Nurse has been you know he's sort of lauded as this very creative outside the box thinker who will make wild adjustments and throw out these crazy lineups and schemes and play high school defenses but when it comes to his lineup decisions he's been pretty sort of trusting of his guys you know all season long he's had his like main seven that he trusts and that's been his seven the entire time and the the playoffs last year he sticks with Marcus Gasol Marcus Gasol plays incredibly in games four and three and four and they win that series against Milwaukee in large part because of Gasol and, and so I I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to any fear that Nurse might have of all right well we're going to swap things out and we're going to not play Gasol as much and maybe that costs you and you're kind of actively working against yourself by trying to overcorrect for something that again was kind of out of your control in game four in game two where Marcus Smart goes crazy and you know, it's it's just a it's a very difficult thing. I do not envy what Nick Nurse has to decide about going into the, into Game Three here because like the season hangs on it for sure, and you know there's arguments for a bunch of different things, and there's also arguments for just kind of keeping things the same as they were in Game Two because again, process wise, they probably should have won that game, and so it's very right. difficult. I I think another thing too, just sort of small, you know, little in game tinkering things. A thing that bothered me about the end of Game 2 was that Kyle Lowry didn't have the ball in his hands enough. And I love Fred Van Vliet. Fred Van Vliet is going to get paid. I hope he gets paid by the Raptors. I want him around a long time. He's excellent. But I do wonder if maybe they've kind of skewed a little bit too far towards having Kyle work off ball when Fred have the ball in his hands just because Fred can over dribble he can sort of be slow to make decisions whereas Kyle is very direct and is not afraid to just like all right I'm going to drive on Robert Williams and stick my ass into him and score and um, you know as much as Kyle hasn't hit his three so far in this series he I think has been very good I think he's been the best Raptor so far he you know his defense remains incredible obviously and his playmaking has been there and he's been getting to the basket reasonably well as well so I think if he can just like again hit a couple extra threes like you said having Kyle with the ball in his hands a little bit more often just feels more threatening to me than Fred kind of dribbling it 12 times and then getting the clock down to 10 and having to get into your stuff. And there's certainly value in what Fred does. And, you know, Van Vliet's three-point shooting has come so far. The pull-up game for him has been amazing so far in the bubble and the first round. Um, but I wonder if maybe just sort of changing the hierarchy a little bit and having Kyle work with the ball in his hands, work pick and roll with Siakam, work the thing that all season long Raptors people have been pointing to as sort of the reason for optimism when it comes to the half-court offense because it hasn't been amazing, but in crunch time they've been ridiculous and have been just destroying teams with Lowry Siakam pick and rolls, and we haven't really seen that at all so far. It's been a lot of Fred and Siakam. It's been a lot of Fred just kind of working his stuff. It's been a lot of post-ups for Pe- for Pascal, and there hasn't been a lot of that just like rudimentary backbone play that's been so, so good in the most important moments for the Raptors this year, and I think I'd like to see that. And again, that kind of goes to the small lineup thing, too. If you can you know, have shooting all over the floor, stick OG and Norm in the corners and have Pascal screen for you, like that becomes a real problem if, if these guys are hitting their shots. And Obviously, if they're not, then the Raptors are screwed and this is going to be a short series. But I think there's some things, you know, sort of macro in terms of playing small and all that stuff, but also just like little tiny in-game tweaks in terms of who's initiating a little bit more often than others. And I'm not like totally out on the idea that this is going to get still going to go seven, which I think most people predicted. I think the Raptors are very, very good at adjustments. As you mentioned, though, 
this is a very, very bad matchup. <laughs> and there are, are a lot of obstacles in the way of the Raptors sort of solving this thing. And they may never completely solve it. It might just be that they scrape by and, and just sort of win on championship gumption and stuff like that, <laughs> um, which, like, I, I guess they can do. But, yeah, it, it's there's no doubt that this is not an easy matchup for the Raptors to overcome. Any uh, final thoughts here, John, before we uh, end this and send people into Game 3? Yeah, you know, it, it's just what's really hard about analyzing this series, and maybe this is just because it's a function of the playoffs, there's just so many things that feel like aberrations all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it's it's hard to figure out what's really real. And and you can say, well, if Fred Van Vliet does this and if Kyle Lowry does this, then we're fine. It, I'm sitting here looking like, well, if Jalen Brown just shoots like he normally shot, then that changes the dynamic. If Kemba Walker goes you know shoots a shoots a normal percentage in in his uh you know he doesn't shoot six of 18 and and doesn't only make one three in this game this this game feels a little bit more comfortable for the celtics because he was missing a bunch of pull-up shots that he would normally it feels like those are the shots he'd normally hit uh robert williams like 10 for 10 in this series where did that come from like there, yeah, there are a lot of, for that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of things you sit there and you say well you know Things will level off. Um, I, I just, I don't know. If one thing levels off, I feel like it's just like moving the water from one cup to another. And if you get enough cups of water over there, like where, where, does the, where does the next bit of water go? So you level one thing off. Do you fix one problem but create another one? Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I, as I look at it and, and just see the things that, that can be done differently, yeah, you know, you guys really benefit from making some shots, but I think the Celtics can benefit from Daniel Tice just, you know, making some of the layups that he would normally hit um, from just being better on the offensive end from, you know, getting back on, on defense uh, just a little bit more. They had a, they had a few inexplicable uh, poor transition moments there where if they could just focus on, on just cleaning those things up, then it, it kind of doesn't matter. I don't think so. I don't want to sit there and be like, well, this is going to be a sweep, but you know, in the first two games, I haven't sat there and said, well, the Celtics were overmatched. Like they, I, I think Toronto probably deserved to win game two, but I don't think they, they imposed their will on the Celtics where you sit there and you say, wow, all right, Toronto's Toronto's better. Like this is, at best, an even series where it could still go seven for sure. Absolutely for sure. But if Toronto can't get their act together, if those guys still can't find their shooting touch early, then I, I don't, I'm curious to see what happens as, as things start to trend downward. Uh, the only thing I, I would say that is in your favor is that the Celtics do have a real tendency when things start looking comfortable to play comfortable mm. and they, they kind of like, that's when the lapses happen. So if Toronto gets down big in the first half, I wouldn't be surprised at like a big third quarter from Toronto mm -hmm. as Boston kind of like loafs back in transition thinking that they got this in school. So I don't know. I, I, I like I like what I've seen from the Celtics. I don't see any magic pill from Toronto other than play better. 
Yeah, and uh, don't look as old as you have, Marcus All, please. Uh, it's, I, it is. <laughs> I mean, I think it is the ultimate telltale sign that this is a very close matchup in that it is the aberrations that are deciding it, and there's not some yeah. sort of trump yeah. card anyone has has played. It's just oh, like Marcus Smart did that, and you know Fred VanVleet didn't do that, and all that. So. Um, you know, it's all there. There are no trump cards until Matt Thomas comes in and hits six threes. Uh, is what I'm saying. <laughs> which, like, I think there's been of talk course. we might see Matt Thomas in Game Three, which, uh, you know, not very good defensively, but in terms of uh, being a horrifying offensive threat for every single defense that comes across him for two minutes a game, I, I, I'm, I'm not against the idea. They need, they need something off the bench because the bench has been dreadful. And like the if you're looking on paper, like where the advantages lie for for each of these teams going into the series, I, like the bench and the depth clearly seemed like in the Raptors' favor. That has not played out. Absolutely. They're not winning those minutes right now, where you know there there's stars on the bench. They're not winning the transitional minutes, and it's just uh, it's not great. So here's hoping that it can be less not great if you're a Raptors fan going into Game Three. I think the Raptors are going to win Game Three. I, like it, it doesn't feel like they're going to like. It just doesn't feel like a roll over and die. This isn't the Sixers, man. Like this is a a team that yeah, cares and likes each other. To. Yeah. Um. So, I, I would expect the Raptors win Game Three, but who the hell knows? It's a again coin flip series upon which strange, <laughs> uh, just occurrences are kind of deciding it all. So, uh, John, this was lovely, man. It was great chatting with you. It's always fun to do podcasts, even though I'm in a not so good mood today. Apparently you're not in a good mood either, but you should be, no. uh, as we <laughs> talked about at the top to close this all in a tiny bow. Um, where can people check out the, the, the podcast and all your work? It's all, obviously it's locked on Celtics. You can find my written work at masslive.com slash Celtics. And find me on Twitter at RedsArmy underscore John, where I'm blatantly self-promoting most of the day. Hell yeah. Uh, shout out to Blatant Self-Promotion. Uh, you get all that from me on uh, Twitter at WoodleySean. You can subscribe to Lockdown Raptors as well. Uh, rates, Ratings, reviews, all that stuff is very, very much appreciated. Uh, John, you're also doing Lockdown NBA, correct? I am on Wednesdays, yeah. generally. Go check that out, too. Lockdown NBA with uh, you and Jake Madison on Wednesdays. You guys do... Wonderful, wonderful work. And uh, that's going to do it for this little crossover. I'm sure we'll do one again, either before the series is out or as a sort of looking back at a horrible sweep or something like that. Um, But I look forward to chatting with you again, buddy. Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.